Jerry Springer ran for federal office before, but his concept finally made it to the Capitol. Welcome to the Powers That Be Daily, Puck's podcast focused on the intersection of Wall Street, Washington, Silicon Valley, and Hollywood, and the players who run it all. I'm Peter Hamby. It's Thursday, November 16th. Today, I'm joined by Abby Livingston to talk about Republican Fight Club. A GOP senator threatened to throw punches during a hearing this week, and two Republican congressmen tussled in a hallway. What is going on on Capitol Hill? Abby and I also discuss one House Democrat's decision to run for governor in her home state and what it says about the future of the Democratic Party. We'll discuss all that and much, much more on today's episode of The Powers That Be. Quick math. The less your business spends on operations, on multiple systems, on delivering your product or service, the more margin you have and the more money you keep. But with higher expenses on materials, employees, distribution, and borrowing, everything costs more. So to reduce costs and headaches, smart businesses are graduating to NetSuite by Oracle. NetSuite is the number one cloud financial system, bringing accounting, financial management, inventory, HR into one platform and one source of truth. With NetSuite, you reduce IT costs because NetSuite lives in the cloud with no hardware required, accessed from anywhere. You cut the cost of maintaining multiple systems because you've got one unified business management suite. You improve efficiency by bringing all your major business processes into one platform, slashing manual tasks and errors. Over 37,000 companies have already made the move. So do the math. See how you profit with NetSuite. By popular demand, NetSuite has extended its one-of-a-kind flexible financing program for a few more weeks. Head to netsuite.com slash powers that be, netsuite.com slash powers that be. That's netsuite.com slash powers that be. Happy Thursday, everybody. Welcome to the powers that be of safe space away from violent activities, fisticuffs, if you will, unlike... Congress, where Republicans feel like they're at their wits' end. I'm stress is getting to them. I'm joined today by Abby Livingston to talk about Republican Fight Club on Capitol Hill. Abby, welcome to the show. How you doing? Uh, just amazed that we now have, uh, you know, I think Jerry Springer ran for federal office before, <laughs> but his concept finally made it to the Capitol. <laughs> the former mayor of Cincinnati, Jerry Springer. Abby, what I'm talking about is a hearing. The HELP Committee hearing uh, in the Senate, the Health, Education, and Labor Committee, Senator Mark Wayne Mullen of Oklahoma, all-time first name, Mark Wayne, he got a little cranky uh, with Sean O'Brien, the president of the Teamsters, and read off a bunch of mean tweets that O'Brien had said about Mullen and basically said, you know, we are, quote, consenting adults. I'm not sure that's the, the phrase that, <laughs> that this situation calls for. Uh, do you want to go right now? And Sean O'Brien, he says, why don't you stand up, uh, stand your butt up. And Mullen stands up and basically they like sort of macho, like threaten to go at each other. I don't think anyone actually believed they were going to like he Mullen was going to crawl over the table and like start brawling with with Sean O'Brien. But Bernie is the chairman of that committee. He had to break it up. Mark Wayne Mullen went on some conservative TV shows later and said, you know, I looked into the precedent for this, you know, like, you know, <laughs> people have caned each other in the past. What's going on here? Like, Abby, is this like, 
sort of rascally House behavior creeping its way into the Senate? Is Mullen just representing a, a you know a deep red state of Oklahoma and sort of being a macho guy, or is or you know have members are they just like really stressed out? What's going on? Uh, I think probably it's a lot of all of the above. There were two other skirmishes on Tuesday, including Kevin McCarthy elbowing one of his colleagues who had voted against him for the speakership. Mm -hmm. And uh, James Comer, the House Oversight Chairman, called a colleague, said he looked like a smurf. I think we are very short tempers, but I think it's also important to remember that millions of Americans go to work every day and don't act like this no matter how tired they are. So I think... The Senate one was just fascinating to me because it made me think of the philosopher Senate, Daniel Patrick Moynihan, who made famous the term defining deviancy down. And it's just sort of amazing to think of what he would have to say if this was being applied to his beloved chamber. But I I just think the behavior in Congress continues to devolve and Mm. leaders are now taking cues from their rambunctious freshman, sophomore members like Lauren Boebert, Ronnie Jackson, um, rather than setting the example in the other direction. Yeah, it's funny you say that. Uh, Mullen went on Hannity uh, on Tuesday evening and was, you know, Hannity was kind of egging him on and, and said, you know, you did the right thing. And then Mullen says, you know, the people of Oklahoma you know, they would they would have been disappointed in me if I didn't stand up to this guy. Uh, we should also say, like, this is a tough guy culture class. Like, Mullen is from Oklahoma. But Sean O'Brien is like a Boston bro. He's from, like, Charlestown, Mass. Uh, <laughs> like, and if you couldn't tell by his accent and the testimony, he's like, yo, stand your butt up. But yeah, just I was sent this by so many people on Tuesday kind of being like, LOL. And also, I can't believe Bernie Sanders is in the thick of this. Like, this is nuts. But it's just like, who is this for? Again, like Mark Wayne Mullen was not going to actually go up there and like throw punches at Sean O'Brien. Like there are other senators in the room. There are uh, people in the the gallery. There are reporters. Like it just, that was not going to happen. And it should be mentioned also on January 6th, Mark Wayne Mullen was in the house and he was one of the members who was like holding the doors closed to keep the rioters from coming into the floor. So like, you know, (laughs) he doesn't want violence there, but like performatively, it kind of seems like he was putting on an act. I don't know. Well, I just think some of this, so much of this goes back to January 6th. Once something like that happens and so many members officially sign off on that as something that was appropriate to happen in the Capitol, which we've seen from the vast majority of Republicans in both chambers. Mm-hmm. Anything goes. I, I mean, it, it, there's there's the entire culture of the United States Capitol changed after that day. Mm-hmm. Um, there were the, all the rails were off and anything was acceptable. Now, part of that may be the changing class that was coming in, mm-hmm. that we've seen this change in the Republican Party and the more stodgy, let's remember where we work types have all retired or lost reelection and there's a new breed. But you can point to that one date as when everything changed. Oh, that's so dark. So another another question, maybe related, maybe not. Tim Burchett from Tennessee, he accused McCarthy of walking by and elbowing him straight in the kidneys, a straight shot to the kidneys, to use his words. Um, he told multiple reporters about this after the fact, but NPR reporter Claudia Grisales was actually like interviewing him when this happened, and she has the audio, she has the receipts, and basically like Burchett is surprised, and he like chases after McCarthy, calls him a jerk. Like, you can hear McCarthy kind of in, in the background of, of Claudia's audio. Like, I can't really tell what he's saying. 
Um, and then a bunch of reporters confronted McCarthy afterwards and were like, hey, multiple reporters saw this. And McCarthy, like, you know, he's gone back on his word multiple times, so he's not exactly, like, captain trustworthy. He kind of has this, like, look in his eyes. Like, he's been, like, like a little like a little boy who, like, caught doing something bad. He's like, uh, 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 what? I didn't do that? Oh, that's crazy. Like, you can just, he just sort of has the whiff that he's, like, not telling the truth about what happened and that he actually did elbow this guy in the back. But I don't know. Like, that also seems like that's the first time I've ever heard of anybody, you know, in our time in Congress who would have, like, done something, like, physical like that. Does it seem out of character to you for McCarthy? To do something like I that. I mean, there have been knives pulled on the House floor, I will say that. But it seems to me the Reagan happy, smiling, happy warrior that Kevin McCarthy has been known for for a very long time has not been at the forefront of his image. And um, I was stunned to hear about that or to see it. But it seems like he is extremely angry about the situation he is in. And, and on that front, he's got to make a decision pretty soon whether or not he wants to run for another term. And so that is the key thing to watch. And that's, that looks to me like someone who doesn't like where they are. But Nancy Pelosi has broken the mold of a speaker who leaves power, um, who sticks around. So maybe it's a mm-hmm. thing. But that's what I'm most intrigued with in trying to understand this behavior is, is he going to run again? Yeah. And I think you're right. It does feel like McCarthy lately is cranky. And has a vendetta against certain people in the house. Abby, I want to take a quick break. uh, And when we come back, I want to ask you about a very, very interesting governor's race on the horizon. Welcome back to The Powers That Be, everybody. I'm talking politics with Abby Livingston. We're just talking about the House, Abby, and one member of the House that you've covered a lot and, and talked to a lot is Abigail Spanberger from Virginia's 7th District. She is very interesting. She came in class of 2018, very much a frontline, moderate House Democrat, but she is you know, former CIA. She got elected in a district that's since been redrawn that really was the sort of inner and outer suburbs of Richmond, Virginia, which that's literally where I grew up. She went to my rival high school, Tucker. I went to Freeman. You know, when I was growing up and when she was growing up, that was Republican territory. And she pushed into a formerly Republican territory to get elected. She surprisingly got reelected again in 2022 in a tougher district. She has a lot of respect among Democrats. And she said... Just the other day, she's going to not run for that seat again, and she's going to run for governor of Virginia. The reason I bring this up is for people out there listening to this podcast, readers of Puck, Virginia is very much a bellwether state when it comes to American politics. Not necessarily at the federal level. You know, it tends to be Democratic at the presidential level. But as we saw a couple Tuesdays ago, very swingy uh, referendum on abortion and governor's races also tend to be a referendum in that state of the president's party and the and whoever's in power. So, for example, in 2017, Democrats won with Terry McAuliffe uh, when Donald Trump was in office. And then Glenn Youngkin won in 2021 when Joe Biden was in office. So my question here is, Abby, maybe can you explain like why she is such a compelling political figure in your mind? I mean, I, I gave my take, but I'm curious what you think about her, because she definitely gets a lot of buzz in the Democratic Party. And I I will say she's not uh, universally beloved. There Mm. are certainly people on the left who take issue with a lot of 
the things she says. But I think why she's interesting is she's tough as nails and she can stay on message with issues that affect her district and that are good for her politics. But she also is pretty off the cuff and she mm. speaks her mind and mm. um, she gets blowback for it. But she's, I, I can't even think off the top of my head one of the instances, but reporters have tweeted where she'll see some congressman being silly or stupid and she'll just say an offhand remark as she's walking by like, the smart aleck in a high school hallway. I think she's proven her political bona fides. She's really, you know, like you said, she won in Republican territory. And so this is going to be a tough race. She does not have a clear path to the nomination or to the general election. So, um, but if she does get over those two hurdles, I think in a post-Joe Manchin world, she's probably the undisputed leader of the moderate wing of their Democratic Party. Yeah, I think one of the most famous moments that we're both thinking about here in terms of the left is after 2020, when House Democratic losses were more than Democrats were expecting. And Spanberger was among those people blaming the defund the police movement, the squad. And she was recorded on on a postmortem conference call with, I believe, the DCCC basically saying, you know, these hollers of socialism and defund the police were killing us in these frontline moderate districts. And basically, yeah, she is the reigning champ of the moderate middle. When I talked to her a couple weeks ago for a piece I wrote on abortion rights in Virginia, uh, right before the statehouse elections, she gave me some very provocative quotes to your point. She was basically saying that Democrats need to be careful. They can't just run on abortion. It needs to be part of a larger package of issues. Like we can't be crying wolf every two years about abortion until we show people results. By the way, a very pragmatic take, but the fact that she was willing to say that out loud was interesting. But yeah, another reason I find this race compelling, not just because I'm from the Commonwealth, is the mayor of Richmond, my hometown, LeVar Stoney, is also going to run for governor. So it's going to be sort of a powerhouse head-to-head primary. He is a protege of Terry McAuliffe, the former governor. You can expect that he's going to put some muscle behind LeVar. LeVar is also black and you know we'll count on african-american support and i think spanberger has to prove that she has (laughs) notable black support in the state i mean her district isn't really super diverse laura stoney was also secretary of the commonwealth under mcauliffe and basically responsible for like giving out appointments to like state boards and commissions so there's a lot of chits that he's going to come collect and like who knows we might also see another progressive jump in that primary so you know again if you're not a follower of Virginia politics, you don't care that much. Th- these are the races to watch in the off years after a presidential year to see which way the country's political winds are blowing. And here we have a big brand name Democrat stepping into the arena. I can't I can't wait for that race. I'm not going to get ahead of myself with 2020, 2025. We still have 2024 to come. But, you know, I think it'll be a big one. Well, and I just I think also and I don't know as much about Stoney because he's never been federal. But what's interesting about Spanberger that I don't often see in members of Congress, especially in the House, is she's been raising a lot of money for the state ledge candidates and donating it Mm. from her leadership pack. She's been doing that with the state party. And even though that should strike you as common sense, as a way to build a statewide network, it really is not an instinct for most members to be thinking and beyond their own political needs. And so... I think it's probably this primary will be rough, but it'll be a primary about the future of the Democratic Party. Mm-hmm. Um, and I think it'll probably end up being a um, party building exercise rather than a negative one. But we will see. Abby, thank you so much for joining me. Thanks for having me. Thanks so much for listening to another episode of The Powers That Be. As a reminder, The Powers That Be is the official podcast of Puck. 
We'd like to thank Ben Landy, Liz Goff, and Alex Bigler for their editorial and production guidance. If you like what you hear, please share with a friend. It really helps us keep delivering the inside scoop that only Puck can offer. Follow us on Twitter at Puck News. I'm Ben Landy. See you tomorrow. This has been a presentation of Odyssey. Please listen, rate, review, and follow all episodes wherever you get your podcasts. The Powers That Be Daily is executive produced by John Kelly, co-founder of Puck, Bob Tabador, and Ben Landy, executive editor at Puck.